when they talk about the election this year not being decided on election night, and we'll have to wait till more votes being counted, that's exactly how it was in 1800. People were on the edge of their seat. This, they believed, was the most important election of their lifetime. This was the big big division between the Federalist vision for the future of America and the Jeffersonian vision for the future of America. And it was that close. I'm Steve Light, and I'm the manager of house tours at Monticello. I'm Dana Kelly. I'm a guide here at Monticello. This, what's the name of our podcast? I, I, I came up with the name long ago. Oh, when in the course of human events, right? In the course of human events, yeah. And you're listening to In the Course of Human Events, a podcast from Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. Today, we're going to be talking about the election of 1800. This is Ed Larson. I'm university professor of history at Pepperdine University. I've written about the election of 1800 in my book uh, called The Magnificent Catastrophe. So Ed's going to take us through this really crazy convoluted story of the election of 1800. Many of the people watching it, newspaper writers and and politicians, both sides would continually refer to it as a running catastrophe because they saw all these totally unforeseen and unforeseeable eventualities developing. But first, Steve, let's talk about the elections prior to 1800. This was the fourth election in U.S. history. So, of course, 1789, 1792, really elections because everyone is expecting George Washington, the father of the nation, to be president, right? He was a shoo-in. And then what happened in the election of 1796, essentially the third election? So this is the first time where there's going to be a contested election. And it it's between John Adams, the sitting vice president, and the former secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson, who had resigned and retired from government going home to Monticello, but was emerging as the leader of the first opposition party to Washington's administration at that time. And so it's a contested election, and Adams wins narrowly. He came in first place with 71 electoral votes. Thomas Jefferson had 68 electoral votes. And so, of course, Adams became the second president. And because he came in second, Thomas Jefferson became the vice president. That's that's extraordinary. I mean, the equivalent of that would be Hillary Clinton serving as Donald Trump's vice president. Yeah, a lot of people don't know about this kind of early system in our country. We, we tend to think about the framers of the U.S. Constitution creating this perfect document, but there was a lot of problems with the document that they ran into right away. And one of the problems was this system where the person who came in second place got to be the vice president. This was the only time in which two candidates from opposite political parties ended up serving together as president and vice president. And of course, the whole system would be changed for choosing the vice president after the election of 1800 because of some other unforeseen circumstances, which we'll be talking about today in our podcast. (laughs) So Dana, when we think about what these campaigns might have looked like, they're a lot different than campaigns today, right? Jefferson and Adams aren't, you know, you know, riding horses all over the country appearing in swing states, right? <laughs> no. I mean, it was, it was considered almost tacky. 
It was sort of distasteful to show that kind of ambition. You, you, you sort of ran for president, but acted like you were almost disinterested. So, of course, in the first couple of elections, George Washington didn't need to campaign. And really, in the third election, Adams and Jefferson never publicly campaigned. So, yeah, it, it did change, though, in that election of 1800, that's for sure. The election of 1800 was America's first presidential campaign with all the bells and whistles we expect now. You saw campaigning, you saw speeches. If you read the newspapers of that day, you might as well be listening to Fox News and MSNBC. The world was presented as a stark difference between two points of view. This was a true campaign. By 1800, two clear, distinct, organized political parties had formed. The Federalist Party was mainly organized by Alexander Hamilton. And in this campaign, the Federalist Party ticket was Adams and Charles Coatsworthy Pinckney of South Carolina. Opposing Hamilton's Federalist Party was a new party, the Democratic-Republican Party, created by James Madison. Candidate was Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson's running mate was former New York Senator Aaron Burr, a magnificent political organizer and longtime rival of Hamilton. This election divided Americans on party, ideological, and even religious lines. The Adams-Hamilton party was viewed as the party of the elites, the wealthy trying to create an industrial manufacturing America focused on the urban cities of the East. Jefferson's party was viewed as the party of the farmer, the worker, the craftsman, the working class. The Federalists continually attacked Jefferson as an atheist, an infidel. Jefferson's party was attacking Adams as a hypocrite and a supporter of unifying the church with the state, while Jefferson billed himself as a supporter of the separation of church and state. So you're dividing America on every fault line possible. We think of dirty campaigning as kind of a modern phenomenon, but this was pretty ugly too, wasn't it? Oh, this, this was one of the worst. Jefferson secretly funded this kind of muckraker, James Callender, to write incendiary pamphlets about Adams. And one of the quotations about Adams is, he's a blind, bald, crippled, toothless man with a hideous, hermaphroditical character. Wow. And let's see, what do they say about Jefferson? Oh, okay, so Adams people wrote about Jefferson, if, if he's elected, quote, murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will openly be taught and practiced. Wow. So, I mean, our current election gets, gets bad, but maybe not that bad. Now, thanks to a law passed late in the 1800s, we all vote at the same time for president. But back then, each state got to choose when they voted. So the election actually passed through an entire calendar year. And if you read the newspapers, they would have a box showing the accumulating electoral votes. How many for Adams and Pinckney? How many for Jefferson and Burr? And you could watch these totals move around. It's comparable now to how we hold primaries, and you can see how the primaries sort of stagger across the year, and you can watch one person gain or lose. And that's how it was happening in the election of 1800. So 
Another way elections were different back then is the process for picking the electors who voted in the electoral college, right, Steve? Each state had a different system. And for most states, the general public didn't vote for president. There was not really a thing such as the popular vote. What they did was they voted for their representatives in their own state houses. And the state legislatures were the ones who actually appointed the electors who voted for presidents. Gosh, it seems like a person's vote was so watered down. It hardly seems like a democracy to me back then. Yeah, it's not really democratic as we would think about that today, is it? So the state elections as a result were very much about picking the president of the United States. And this was the case particularly in what was at the time probably the swing state of swing states for 1800, which was New York. And those elections were in the spring of 1800. New York back then was like Florida today. It was so crucial. And because it was Hamilton's home state, New York had gone for Adams in the prior election. But Aaron Burr was a master politician. He seemed to have no principles whatsoever except himself and the accumulation of power. He anticipated many of the developments of party organizing, including canvassing for votes, get out the vote campaigns, soliciting funds, raising funds, precinct organization. And he had done that in his home state of New York, where he had been a a senator. And Burr organized a magnificent campaign that managed to just barely win the day for Jefferson's party. Jefferson, once he got New York, he tended to be ahead, but then Adams progressively caught up. And by the eve of the election, no one knew who was going to win. It was that close. And two states, Pinckney's own state, Charles Culturally Pinckney, Adams' running mates, his own state of South Carolina and Pennsylvania delayed their voting. They literally waited to the last possible moment. Adams went to bed on election night thinking he'd won because he thought that Pinckney could pull South Carolina behind his ticket. Turned out Pinckney failed because Pinckney's cousin, another Pinckney, he was backing Jefferson and South Carolina's votes went to the ticket of Jefferson and Burr, and that meant Jefferson won. But they had a problem. Totally unexpectedly, against every plan of the Jeffersonians, Jefferson and Burr came in tied. So we've already talked about that electoral college system and how that system led to Adams and Jefferson serving as president and vice president. So this time, the same system led to another unexpected and not good result. Under the original constitution as drafted, there was no notion of political parties. Every elector got two equal votes. You didn't cast one vote for president and one for vice president. You just simply cast two votes. What would be the chances of two people tying Well, if you're voting for a party ticket of two people aligned from the same party, naturally there's going to be a tie because if all the Jeffersonian electors vote for Jefferson and Burr and all the Federalist electors vote for Adams and Pinckney, whoever the winner is, it's going to be a tie between those two people. And so what you're supposed to do under the old system is is arrange ahead of time for one of your electors to throw away their vote. 
In other words, somebody would need to decide, well, I'm not going to vote my second vote for Burr so that theoretically the presidential candidate, Thomas Jefferson, would have one more electoral vote than his vice presidential nominee. Okay. And that would be arranged in advance, right? Yeah, theoretically it would. But Uh remember, 1796, Dana, Adams won by only three votes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so... Jefferson's team decided not to arrange for any of the electors to throw away their votes. They were so concerned about the closeness of the election. Oh, that was so a risk. Yeah. It was a risk. And so they wanted to be sure they had enough votes to win. Uh-huh. And they did. But you can imagine what the result was. Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr both with 73 votes. John Adams had 65 votes, and Pinckney had 64, and the one throwaway votes went to John Jay, former Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court from New York. It was close, but they had room to throw away one vote. They didn't throw away any votes. And the problem with that was you'd think, oh, that's easy enough. Think of today. If you had Trump and and uh, Pence coming in tied. Well, of course, Pence would step down and give it to Trump because everybody knew the supporters were voting for Trump, same way if it was Harris and Biden. But that was not Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr wouldn't step down for anyone. He was a true megalomaniac. And so there you had the two candidates tied, which means under the Constitution, the election is decided by the House of Representatives. Burr plays it quiet because if he comes out openly for the office, he's undercut himself because everyone knew, everyone knew that Thomas Jefferson was the candidate for president and Burr was the candidate for vice president. And so he just waited to see what happened because the election was going to be decided by the lame duck Congress. And the lame duck Congress had a majority of Federalists and a Federalist speaker. Steve, so say it happened today. The one key difference is that today it would be the new Congress, which gets sworn in in the beginning of January before the electoral votes are read out, that gets to decide. Now it's the Federalist turn to begin scheming. And they decided to contest the election. They couldn't vote for Adams. They couldn't vote for Pinckney. The only choice was Burr or Jefferson. And they thought they could make Burr their man because they knew he was unprincipled. So they decided, we're going to back Burr. The problem is that under the Constitution, and this is still true today, the House does not pick the president by majority vote in the House of Representatives. Each state votes individually. There were 16 states at that time. There were going to be 16 votes, one from each state, cast by however a majority of that state's delegation chooses to vote. You need a majority of the states, which means if you have 16 states, you need nine. Eight states were controlled by a majority of Jeffersonian members of Congress. Six states were controlled with a majority of Federalists, and two states were split evenly. So going into that first vote, Jefferson knew that he had eight states. The Federalists believed that some of these Jeffersonians, who they viewed as a party of scallywags and farmers and immigrants and lowlifes, 
that they could buy off a few of the congressmen. They were absolutely convinced they could buy off the congressman from Tennessee. Well, there's only one congressman back then from Tennessee. If they could buy him off, well, there's a state. Burr had friends in New Jersey and New York. Flip a couple seats there and you you pick up those states because they were sort of evenly divided. And so you pick up three or four members of Congress during the course of the voting and you've got a majority for Burr. That was the Federalist conviction. Now, Jefferson, of course, saw that coming and did everything he could do to stabilize his own majority. There's a great story that one of the Federalists who was trying to bribe one of the congressmen went up to him and offered him the the job of port commissioner under the new administration if he would flip and vote for Burr. And he apparently replied, port commissioner, Jefferson has already promised to make me ambassador to Spain if I stay with him. And so they were horse trading back and forth and everyone was staying in line vote after vote. And at one point, you have the threat of several states raising their militias to march on the Capitol for their candidate. Thomas McKean, who was the governor of Pennsylvania, and James Monroe, governor of Virginia, both are threatening to use military force to to march on Washington to ensure that the election isn't stolen from Jefferson. And there are even calls among the Republicans for a new constitutional convention. Their attitude is if if they are denied this electoral victory, that the Constitution is broken and that needs to be replaced. Jefferson kept having hope that some of these Federalists would see the light. They all knew how the people had voted. All he needed was one member of Congress, and he would have his nine. And Jefferson wrote a letter to his daughter. He said, this is the saddest thing I've ever seen. I'm only doing this for you and your sister because this is our last chance to save this country. They really, really felt the American experiment was at risk. And it's, it's interesting because we think of the founders as this unified group of people. But in fact, here they were, you know, some 20 years after the Declaration of Independence, when Adams and Jefferson so proudly worked together in the same document, they're really fighting over what what that moment really meant. And for Jefferson especially, he, he views this election as a defining point of whether or not the revolution will be a successful experiment. Exactly. Yeah, there was so much at stake. One person who steps to the fore is... Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton was a founder of the Federalist Party, and he hated Thomas Jefferson with a passion, but he also knew Aaron Burr. And he realized that at least Thomas Jefferson was an honorable man. Burr was nothing but a proto-tyrant. And so Alexander Hamilton went on an amazing letter-writing campaign. He wrote to every single Federalist in Congress, pleading with them to vote for Jefferson. These are our moving letters. As he wrote in one of them, if there's a man in the world that I ought to hate, it is Jefferson, but the public good must be paramount to every private consideration. He went on to write, Burr loves nothing but himself, thinks of nothing but his own aggrandizement, 
and will be content with nothing short of permanent power. If he has a theory, it is simply that of despotism. And yet no Federalist broke, despite Hamilton's pleas. But the person he worked on most was the congressman from Delaware. Back then, Delaware was America's smallest state and least populated state, and therefore it had only one member of Congress, James Bayard. And he knew that Bayard was a devout Federalist, but he also knew Bayard was a reasonable man. And Bayard increasingly began to see that Burr was not going to win. And what was going to happen was that we were going to reach the end of the president's term with nobody chosen. So did Jefferson's side engage in any horse trading, so to speak? Did, did Bayer demand some concessions for his vote? How'd that work? The, the Federalists wanted assurances that he would keep intact the Federalist fiscal system that properly funded national debt and the Bank of the United States. Mm -hmm. They wanted him to promise that America would maintain its neutrality between the, the ongoing wars between Britain and France. And at first, Jefferson refused to kind of negotiate. But there is evidence that eventually James Baird was told through an intermediary, not Jefferson himself, of course, he was above all this, Of course, uh, that those views would be in accordance with Jefferson. And so finally, James Bayard privately told the Speaker of the House, Theodore Sedgwick, this is too much. I'm going to flip and I'm going to vote for Jefferson. And so a deal was done. By letting some Federalists abstain in some key states, such as Maryland, those states would flip. And so the result was when the 35th ballot was cast, no Federalists voted for Jefferson, but some abstained. And that gave Jefferson two more states. Instead of eight, it gave him 10. The hatred was so strong that let him have it by default. Don't let him have it with Federalist votes. And that was the deal that was cut and Jefferson became president. It is important to note that one of the reasons that Jefferson wins the election is because of the three-fifths compromise, which was a compromise made during the Constitutional Convention that allowed enslaved people to be counted as three-fifths of a person when figuring representation for states. And so while enslaved people had no vote, of course, no political say in this government, they still were being counted towards how states figured how many representatives they had which gave an advantage to those states like Virginia and, and other Southern states that had a large percentage of enslaved people. 40% of Virginia at this time was enslaved. Jefferson views it as his duty to bring the country together. And, you know, Jefferson's got a lot of warts, but I'm a Jefferson fan, partly because of the Declaration of Independence, but also because of his first term in office. His first term, he was focused on bringing the country together. And so he gives this wonderful inaugural address where he says, 
we're all Federalists, we're all Republicans, we're all Americans. We have to come together. And Jefferson then led not as a partisan, but as a unifier. We end up miraculously with a decrease in partisanship after the election of 1800, in part because America had seen the abyss and looked over and saw the immediate potential for civil war and disunion. And they pulled back under Jefferson's leadership and America had a new birth of unity. That's one of the reasons Jefferson called the election of 1800 the revolution of 1800, because it really brought back a more unified America in its wake. And the 12th Amendment was very quickly passed, provided that thereafter, electors wouldn't cast two votes for president. They would cast one vote for president and one vote for vice president. Needless to say, he dumps Burr. Burr ends up getting in his fatal dispute with Hamilton, leading to Hamilton being shot by the sitting vice president of the United States, who goes back to Washington and continues to preside over the Senate. Burr is not chosen again. Indeed, Jefferson tries uh, Burr for treason and instead chooses New York Governor uh, George Clinton as his second running mate. And again, this unification process continues. Jefferson believed that government needs to continue to evolve to serve the people. And he viewed the election of 1800 as a move towards a greater democracy, that is, a greater choice by the people and less power concentrated in a small moneyed elite. He viewed it as a peaceful revolution through the ballot rather than a violent revolution. And that he viewed as part of the, the genius of America. Dan, I think one thing that I take from this is that we often feel like the, our present circumstances are unprecedented. And there's some comfort in knowing that we have gone through similarly contentious and partisan periods in our nation's past uh, and found our way through to the other side. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. And thanks to Ed Larson. That was great. Thanks for listening to In the Course of Human Events, a podcast from Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. This podcast was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities.